Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport, bringing you a unique perspective on the biggest races and talking points throughout the 2019 pro cycling season. I'm Graham Wilgos, and we've got something of a classic feel to today's episode as we welcome 2004 Paris-Roubaix winner Magnus Baxter to the studio. Maggie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, the home of cycling, of course, is almost your second home nowadays. You're dropping in for a chat before your commentary appointment later. Yeah, it's definitely becoming a, a regular feature in what I'm doing. So, uh, yeah, nice to be here. And uh, Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, and, of course, the main man, Brad. How yes. are you? Good, thank you, yeah. Yeah? Good week? It's been all right. It's been all right. Up and down. but <laughs> Up and down. A little bit of, it's little always bit of sickness. Good to finish it on the end of the week, watching the classic San Remo. You know, yeah. Historic race. And, and what a finish. I'm sure we'll get into that later. We will come to that later. And much to talk about there. But, Magnus, I just want to start with you um, mm. and what you've been doing with yourself. Because you're a, you're, a, you're a busy man, obviously, in pro cycling retirement. You've got not only your own business interests, but you've got two very keen cyclists under your wing currently, too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's uh, cycling-related, everything that we do within the family. So uh, both of my daughters are, are, are racing at quite a high level now and uh, obviously everything that we do is going around trying to get them to and from bike races and uh, sort of getting, getting everything ready for, for the following weekend again. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's busy but, but really, really interesting and uh, nice to see that they've picked a sport that obviously both me and my wife enjoy doing as well. And you're both, you've both got the burden of being the dad taxi nowadays, <laughs> I, sh- I should think. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to hold it off. My lad wants to do it a lot. I mean, I mean, Magus will, you know, understand this. It's, it's quite a difficult decision to take to, you know, you want to leave them to it and let them make their own mind up. And I think one, always conscious of, of just give it, pushing them and kind of, especially with their names, you know, with both of us being ex-professionals and that, that you want them to forge their own way. And, and obviously Magnus's yeah. girls are, are well on the way to doing that themselves under their own esteem. But it is a difficult one because, you know, the last thing you want to do is hurt them or put them into something that they will get hurt just because of their name and they're unawares of it. So it is a tough one. But at the same time, you know, you want them to find out about this great sport that's brought you everything in your life. Well, from one man in, in Magnus putting many of his resources into, uh, into his little team um, to another in Sir Jim Radcliffe, it's official this week. Team Sky will become Team Ineos uh, from the Tour de Yorkshire from the 1st of May. Brad, obviously we spoke about this at length last week, uh, but now it's official. Mm. What do we think? You have to think it's a brilliant thing for cycling. You know, one major backer go out Sky in terms of what they've done for cycling. And this one coming in, replacing, you know, uh, Sky, which is obviously everyone's talked about the money input that Sky have put into it. And this guy's now going to put more money in. I mean, hats off to him. But at the same time, (laughs) it's not a lot of money to him when you consider he's the richest man in Britain. Whether it's good for overall in cycling, considering how hard it is now for teams to find sponsorship and find money 
I did see a quote the other day which made me chuckle, and it was uh, Brailsford could put his hand down a toilet and pull chocolate out, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> from, from Jonathan Borsos. <laughs> and he does Borsos. seem to land on his feet, but hats off to Jim for putting his money in. And it remains to be seen, you know, all, we did speak about last week, the guys, you know, Geraint's this world and everyone that will be wondering what they're going to do next year, the, the quality of riders they got there that would all have to find new teams and whether they'll get the same salaries, the commitments they have outside of cycling financially, that's a win put to bed for those guys, but... And I think the it ripple is, effect that that would have caused yeah. further down the, the ranks as well, even down to continental team level, that would mm. have had an effect on riders. I mean, the, the strength of depth at Sky, mm. all having to find new sponsors, all wanting as close to their current salaries as possible. Th- this is the problem, I think. It's no good sweeping it under the carpet. At the end of the day, the sport is a bit on its arse, really, at the moment, financially, in terms of what other teams have. So for all the Jim Radcliffe's and all the Team Skies with the money they have, it's amazing teams like Quickstep do so well with yeah. the money they have. But further down, it just diminishes right down to, you know, the teams, the Wanty Goubert, this world and that. I mean, it's it's quite a contrast, really. So Here's another Jonathan Vorters quote for you, then. He's described Sky as having this impenetrable wall of money. Now, in terms of having that resource compared to the rest of the peloton, the question has to be, how do we start to even that up? And do we start to introduce things like, as have been talked about this week, salary caps? I don't think the, the salary cap, I think um, if there's a salary cap for everyone, the, the teams will just find the best organised team will still be where the, all the main sort of the big riders will go anyway. And I think if you're looking, certainly I've, I'm not being part of teams, kind of being on the outside, but looking at what they do and how they structure everything around the riders, they do that probably the best in, in, in the world at the moment. So with that, I think the riders of, you know, like... Um, Hang on, Bernal, Ivan Sosa, they, they, they choose, they're choosing that, that team because of what they do and how they do it. So, yeah, capping the salary, I'm not sure it will work. Um, at the same time, you know, there's a lot of riders uh, and a lot of teams out there. If they had £40 million given to them, they wouldn't say, no, thanks, I'll just have 20. You're not going to um, leave it on the table, are you? No, exactly. So, from my point of view, um, if the money's there, from, you know, then, then it's, it has to be taken into the sport. It's hard to sit here and not be, try and not be hypocritical and say they should have salary caps because when we were riders, you want to make as much as you can when you can because it's yeah. such a short career. And it was, you know, I was talking to someone last week, you know, it's only 20 years ago, the likes of Bjorn Reese and that, it was on €200,000 when he won the Tour in '96. When you consider that now, what these guys are on, even 10 years ago, the likes of Andy Schleck and that, they were only built on a million euro. Now these guys are earning four million euro. So it's, it's, it, you can't sort of sit here now and say, we're gonna, we need to have a salary cap just to make it better. I mean, one of the things I will say for Dave is he's always said, I don't follow what the sport's doing now. I want to try and envisage how, this, how I want the sport to look in 10 years' time and try and do that now. Now that's quite visionary, and mm. other people won't think like that, which makes them obviously need the money to do that as well. So with their office blocks and buses and kitchens and every rider's own washing machine and all that, it's so far advanced to some what some teams are thinking and French systems, baguette and a can yeah. of coke at the finish. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's wrapped in tinfoil. And it's like, it, there's two worlds, it's contrasting. You know, you can see it's spoiling the sport or is Dave the one who's got the problem or is everyone else needs to catch up with them? And I, I, it's a tough one at this stage and, and the void's just getting bigger and bigger on a grand tour level. But what I will say is on the one day stage, it's just as competitive, I think. It is. It is as competitive. I mean, if we're looking at the, the Koenig quick step, we've got Astana doing really, really well mm-hmm. this year as well. I think the, the Koenig is probably where Team Sky are in, in stage racing, the, the, the Koenig quick step are in yeah. one-day races. Yeah. So we've got to have a look at that as well. Are you allowed to have that many one-day spe- specialist riders in, in a team? And 
I, I don't think we can can start controlling the the racing from a money point of view. It's got to be done on the bike. And I personally feel that if you're behind and you're chasing, then you just got to chase harder and and make it work for you to to sort of come up with a strategy of beating those guys. And I think the victories will become that much sweeter when you do topple them finally. You've got to plunge your hand into the toilet and, and do the same thing that Dave Brails Dave well, yeah, hopefully them, right? you come out with chocolate as well. <laughs> Other teams, as we say, they can still compete. OK, it gets more and more difficult the longer a race is. You get to Grand Tour level and it becomes very, very difficult to be able to compete with Team Sky. But you're talking about one-day races there, Maggie. You've still got that wonderful unpredictability about it. That said, obviously, De Kerning have been cleaning up. Um, mm. And we saw again yesterday at Milan San Remo, Julian Alaphilippe crossing the line first in, a, in another thrilling finish. I mean, um, he, he just can't stop winning at the moment, can he? He's, he's, yeah. he's on, on a roll. And, and uh, you know, when you see a rider like him getting onto that crest of that wave, um, it's like Peter Sagan was a couple of years back. It's, it's, You've just got to take your hat off to, to him and the team for, for producing these rides that, um, that they do. We did and talk I, about him last week, didn't we? Just yeah. how, you well, know, it was, it was the way he won this time as well. Yeah. He let it out and won it. I mean, yeah. Sagan was there, Kwiatowski was there. I mean, it was phenomenal, really. And that just shows the level of confidence now. And I, mean, I, I think when you're on that crest of a wave, that crest of confidence, you, you take opportunities, you, you, you think less, don't you? And I think that's kind of where he's at at the moment. And, uh, it's well, phenomenal it, to watch. It was, a, it was phenomenal. It was a spectacular finish. Here's how Rob Hatch saw it. Just a few hundred metres away is Alaphilippe's going to have to launch it now. The end of Milano San Remo, the 110th edition. Alaphilippe is going for it as they come up to the line. Alaphilippe's still at the front. It's going to be him. Oh, he can't stop winning. Alaphilippe has it. It was lethargic coming into the final few hundred metres. But once Alaphilippe hit the front, you wondered if he'd gone too early. The answer was a resounding no. De Koenig quick step, do it again. It was Alaphilippe's seventh win of the season, the fifth big one-day race this season for De Koenig, um, who, as we said, are cleaning up. Alaphilippe, there doesn't seem to be a race at the moment that he can't win, whether he's competing for a sprint, whether it was a kind of a strange mix of the two yesterday after, as we were saying earlier, Maggie, the, the fastest climb of the Poggio in the race's history, we think. Yeah. If you're Alaphilippe at the moment, you must be going into every single race feeling like, I'm the man for this, there's no one who can beat me. So what I wanted to come to with this was, and, and Maggie, I think there's one very famous example from you, but Brad, let's start with you. You got to the point in your career, and, and 2012 obviously stands mm-hmm. out, we know about that. Did you feel like going into each race you went into, I'm the man here and there's no one, if, if things go my way, there is no one who can touch um, me? Yeah, I wouldn't say I was walking around thinking I'm the man, but I, um, I was just in a hot patch where you stop thinking about it. Mm. And I think that came from the fact that we weren't celebrating the races that we were winning because it was all about one other race. It was the build. So I went from Paris-Nice, Romandie, Dauphiné. And, it, and, and because it's always about something else that's part of a plan, you, you, you tend to celebrate less. I think Maggie, obviously, his thing was Paris-Roubaix. And I can mm. remember when you people forget, we almost won Webblegem midweek yeah. before Roubaix. Yeah, I did, yeah. And in those days, Webblegem was the build-up to Roubaix. So Roubaix was always... So you, you didn't really think about that. You just almost... The concentration was on, I felt good today. I felt good second time at the Kemmel and that because it's always about Sunday. Yeah. And you almost don't... You forget you got second in Paris, yeah. wherever we were that day. Yeah. Because you won on Sunday and everyone forgets. 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of this, and that's what it's like with the Dauphiné. You win the Dauphiné, but it's like, oh, great, we're on track for the tour. Like, we forget G almost won that because we, oh, his override memories that he won the, do- uh, the tour. You, you, you don't think about what you're doing at the time until you look back because it's always part of a bigger plan, really, and the Cobble Classics are the same, really. You get into this hot patch, and it, it's always about the goal you, you're aiming for and you're hoping to achieve, mm. and you almost forget about the build-up races were, were just as good, but you, you tend to forget about those because they're part of the stepping stone. Maggie, Paris-Roubaix 2004, you woke up that day feeling like, hold on a second here. I could feel there was something. The moment I, I, I sort of climbed on the bike, I felt that it was something was different. It was just something the way the bike felt and the way even the chain kind of responded, if you will, when, when I rolled off, off the car park. And I knew I was, in, I knew I was going well. Um, like you had it's an funny, extra like, gear. Like, like you said, Brad, that, that, the game, Vavel game, I, I finished second in that one. It was one. terrible weather that day, wasn't it? It was, it was pretty, yeah. bad, pretty bad. And But I managed to, like the sprint I did, I, was, I let out from 400 to go and, and there was only Tom Bonner who came, managed to come past me and... I kind of knew then I was I was yeah. I was onto something special. I was going really well, and it was part of the plan because I always had Tour of Flanders as my as my last training ride. You know, I wanted to be in the early morning break and get 240, 250k into the stay, into the race just to empty the tank to get ready because that's that's the way that was the way my body worked for for the following Sunday. Then, but yeah, going into to that one, it was probably one of the few times where I felt. That I, I had a team behind me. I, I everything was there. Everything was set up. Uh, the equipment was right. Every, everything. We turned over every stone on on the way to uh, to Roubaix to to have a look at what was underneath it and make sure that we knew exactly how to ride over it. And that kind of gave me that confidence as well that I knew I was ready for it. We'll come back to Roubaix. I just want to pause on Milan San Remo briefly. So in that mix at the end, we had obviously Alaphilippe who crossed the line first. You had Peter Sagan, Valt van Aert, uh, Matteo Trentin who was setting a serious pace on the descent, Valverde mm-hmm. in the in the World Champ stripes, and Mikhail Kiatkowski. He obviously won it the year before last. Skyrider, what is it with Sky and the one day races, the major one day races and the classics in particular? Because they've got two. They've got Kiatkowski's San Remo win, and they've mm-hmm. got Valt Pols. Yep. So why is it that to this point? They still can't seem to crack the one-day races and the classics in particular. I think that the the attention to the detail that they're paying into to uh, to stage race right stage racing and grand tours especially isn't quite going into to the one-day races and the, and the cobbled classics in the way that you need to like I said you almost need to turn over every single stone on the way from from Compiègne up to up to the Roubaix Velodrome to make sure you know what's underneath it and how you're going to ride that certain stone and I don't think certainly from watching from an outside that there is enough focus being done on that one I know every year that I went there with a view of of trying to win the bike race I've been across there four or five times already motor paced across there and 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 so one way making sure I knew exactly what equipment was the fastest and all that sort of stuff and I don't know whether it's time or whether the ride and staff and and the whole team is not quite looking at it in in that way it's just part of another bunch of races that they kind of need to cover because they are part of the world tour it's part of what they do Brad how do you say well I also think that it's um, one day races it's 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 a lot less controllable it's like trying to keep a box of frogs in a box you know jumping out (laughs) the minute a classic starts it's just bang 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 this isn't a week long race where they know they're going to get a day where they're going to go over three one hour climbs where you can stick your five guys on the front sit at 450 watts and absolutely control the peloton you know this one is is you hit a poggio most people can get over a climb of five kilometers at Mm. 30 35k an hour you know this is a completely different thing you can't stick your five six big climbers on the front on the chipressa or on the poggio you will always get someone willing to attack 
summit because it's there's only three k to the summit and I've got a crazy descent. And the minute they catch them back, someone else will go. It's just the one days everyone's got a chance of winning and everyone is is in with a chance of winning and you can't control it to the degree you control it in a grand tour. If the, all the classics were together over a week, you have, might have more chance because people get fatigued, people get tired, people could empty themselves in a one-day race to the likes of mm. Matt Heyman and these guys yeah. and produce these crazy training scores and things like that. Mm. You know, But trying to do it the day after, the minute you start up a climb or something, that's where Sky come into their own. And I think... Thank God, because these are, you know, kind of, you know, these are the ones that really kind of excite people to watch on TV. And that's why they're the classics. That's why they're so good. And, and interesting, Alaphilippe was the one, the main instigator of the Poggio yesterday yeah. that, that really had a go. And the only thing that surprised me yesterday with the likes of Valverde and all these guys watching as they came into the last sort of 800 minutes to go was that lull of 10, 12, 13 guys. And I just thought someone would have gone like Chamil would have gone back in the day, or and no one went. Everyone waited. I, I don't waited, know if that's because Sagan was there, yeah, and they was just kind of all waiting for Peter, but no one tried their hand. But that that happened last year as well. Very very similar. There was no one really yeah. giving it that go, and I think Peter is a is a big factor in that in that game. But it's also thinking that if you're looking down at that list there, there's a number of riders out of those thirteen guys who are capable of winning a sprint. But are they all feeling like they are actually have got the legs and have got the ability to win, you know, on that day? And why not, you know, do you need to take that, commit to that fly? I mean, Matteo Trentin did a half-hearted kind of attack as they came down onto off the Poggio, but it didn't look 100% committed to me. Yeah, I, and, I, and when you got to that point of the race, so they, they, they always say with San Remo, don't they? It's the the easiest classic to finish, but the hardest one to win. Did that old adage prove right yesterday? I think, I think you're right. Not if you're Alaphilippe. I mean, it's phenomenal, really. Yeah. I mean, he would have been the one that I'd have expected to make that move. Yeah. And he made it from the front yeah. and led it out and won. And we think the last, what, it's not even 11, 12 months since the Tour. King of the Mountains in the Tour, two stages in the Tour. San Sebastian, you know, whatever else he won in between that, he won the other week, Strada Tour, Tour of Britain. Milan San Remo, phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely, you know. Plouet, did he win Plouet? I mean, it's just an um, incredible mix of races as well. And you sort of... I wouldn't be putting past him Liège. I think he's got second in flesh last year. Yeah, yeah. He won it last year, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. yeah. So from one sensational finish at San Remo to, I think we have to mention this, just because it was so close, the dramatic conclusion to Trono Adratico on Tuesday, and it all came down to a 10.5-kilometre time trial. Adam Yates in blue at that point. All he had to do was not lose too much time to Primoz Roglic. In 25 the, seconds, I think. 25 seconds, correct, because yeah. we had the, the count back on the screen. In the end, the difference was 0.31 seconds. Gutting for Adam Yates. Only a short time trial, 10.5 Ks. But what do we think? We, we, we've seen his brother Simon. See, he, he seems to have got the knack over the closed season of, of, of being able to be comfortable in that time trial position. And we saw with his win at Paris-Nice yeah. that, that that was the case. But we don't... Don't yet feel that way about Adam, do we? Ooh, well, I mean, I mean, this time trial is a very specific time trial. I mean, it's um, I think from what I understand, it's the same one they've had every yeah, year. It's the same. It's five k out, five k back. Yeah. <laughs> Typical Italian, as we spoke about last week. Dogs running across, people crossing the road. It's a beach resort, so there's wind coming off one way. It could be a headwind out one way, headwind back. There's a couple of speed humps on it. Probably the worst type of time trial for Adam Yates actually to, to go ever go out. He probably did well to just lose the time he did. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't enough to win the race overall. But um, Maggie's written it many times, isn't it? It is a very More specific time I care to remember. But... And it, it was normally the big build-up to the classics where yeah. you'd say Fabian's informed because it was right up Fabian Street, mm. this time trial. Yeah, and it still, it still has the fastest time around yeah. there, just over 11 minutes, I think. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it is a very different time trial to the 
one that they had in Perinis where Simon obviously went and won. But looking at the, the, those two guys, time trial, I still think there's plenty of work to do with their positions to get them more comfortable more and, and get them faster on, on the bikes. So, I um, think some of the later sort of uh, positions and developments that are happening around, not not just in on the road sport side of the sport, but on the track especially, um, that there's plenty of scope to find a bit more speed for them on, on, on positions. What's the deal there, Brad, in a time trial position? Like you were obviously always super comfortable. Yeah, in I mean, that situation. It, it's a tough one because for these guys, they're just bike races, as we've said, you know, Adam and Simon, but they're, they're losing bike races on time trials now to the likes of Dumoulin and G and these guys that are real. They're specialist time trials anyway, but they're able to climb with these guys. So they have to work on it, they're forced to work on it. And, um, not everyone gets it right, so there is a there's a contrast between going way too extreme in the tunnel to have su- mm. super aerodynamic numbers, but just unrealistic in terms of holding that position when you get out in practice. So they've got a real balancing act to do. At the same time, they've still got to be concentrating on the things that made them good in the first place: training, going out on the road, doing those rides, those steep climbs, and that. So they've got while all the other guys that have already nailed the time G and they're like just concentrating on working because they know that that's in the bag. So it's tough for them, you know. It really is. You know, they get better at time trialing and take their eye off the ball then they're not as good climbing and what they were good at in the first place so it's a balancing act and they, you don't want to be spending years on it and I think Simon has already looked like he's certainly made the difference in, in such a short time Adam as well whether it's key to Adam or not in terms of winning long term I don't know really I still think Simon's probably the one we're going to be looking at this year for the Giro and stuff but it's not bad, is it? 13 seconds either way in that time trial to Rodlich out and back. You know, it's, it's, I don't know what he would have lost a year ago, but they've made some advances. You, yeah, you've got to think yeah. it's going to be a lot yeah. more. Uh, ever lost a race by that sort of margin? Time trial, no. I lost uh, time trial last stage in the Giro by one second to a Lithuanian guy. Once It started raining on the cobbles at the end. And How did you feel afterwards? I was guided. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, um, of course you're going to be. Yeah, I mean, you always tend to lose... I mean, there used to be a time trying to pan, three days to pan, it was always mm. come down to seconds, you know, at the end of it and things... Um, top prologues you know things like that I, think I still remember McGee won the Paris time troll Miller's chain came off in the final and he won by I think 0.6 of a second to take the yellow jerseys for the only time in his career you know these things happen it's like uh, that's why they're there that's bike racing that's yeah. what makes sport cool isn't yeah. it? he did pretty well on the podium afterwards to, to keep a smile on his face because you've got to be thinking in that situation haven't you like, just get me off well yes and no back into the bus I, don't, I mean I don't know really it's it, it's whether I always got to think in those situations as disappointing they are at the time if someone had said to him early in the year you're going to finish second in terrain or how do you get to go but not tell him how it's all very well hindsight really yeah. and I've got to think where he's at now in terms of his build up to what his real main goals are Tirreno would not have been his main goal of the season you know, this is about bigger things to come. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it's keeping your eye on that. It's almost like it's that got, first yeah. test, isn't it, of the season, really, to kind of work out where am I roughly, well, how's, yeah. the, how's the body feeling. And um, I tell you now, he's got the best man around him in Matt White to mm. pull him back. Yeah. All right. Well, plenty more to come on the Bradley Wiggins show right after this. In 2019, cycling fans across Europe will be able to watch over 30 UCI World Tour events live on Eurosport and Eurosport Player, available on the app and online via eurosport.co.uk. Eurosport Player also allows viewers to catch up and relive all the action on demand. Eurosport will bring fans unrivaled expertise and analysis from all the best moments of the 2019 season. Welcome back to the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport. Chaps, the classic season is upon us. Uh, Ghent, Wevelgaum, the cobbles just around the corner. Magnus, let's start with you as our uh, as our classics winner. Um, 2004 Paris Roubaix, as we've already mentioned. Thank you. Um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm sure you, you can't talk about it enough. Ago, no? 15 years ago now. <laughs> and I think this is the only, the only title that I have that, that you haven't managed to get. No, I don't know. Riding the cobbles is a particular skill and, and being able to do it and, and do it comfortably because you being able to physically drill yourself over that sort of course over that many hours and then still put yourself in a position to win it because it's about riding sometimes a great long time on you effectively on your own. Well, I, I kind of put it down to almost 27 individual pursuits in, in a day of 260 kilometres of, of bike racing. Um, the numbers are, are not too dissimilar in terms of what you're doing across the cobblestones in, um, in power output. And yeah, like you said, it's a lot of it is uh, individual time trials across the cobblestones. You you want to make sure that you're as sheltered as you possibly can be, but at the same time, the moment you put yourself in a sheltered position, you also can't really see where you're going properly. Uh, you can't sort of uh, avoid the, the the bigger holes and the bigger um, obstacles that that you find you you come across. So it's always that that fine balance between being too close to the wheels in front of you and and being caught up in a crash or or hitting through and and, and breaking a wheel, puncturing whatever we throw at it, and saving as much energy as you as you can and uh, get that that sort of feel right and getting that right is is really really difficult to do and getting that feel right as you say how does it actually feel sort of being bounced across the those cobbled sections well obviously you, you the first first time you hit the cobblestones on 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 any time you go out on them you you can't really see where you're going because it's almost like your eyeballs are rattling in your head but when you when you get onto it and and i think more when you're carrying enough speed across them it actually feels smoother so the faster you go, the, the, the smoother it, it feels. And every, every rider is different in terms of how they, how they make that happen, whether you're riding high cadence or whether you're just turning a big gear across the cobbles. You know, every, everyone's got to find their own way of doing it right. Brad, how did you feel about the cobbles? Did you dread them? Did you, you, you no, came around I mean, to the, the I dreaded everyone around me, particularly towards the later years. I knew that I could do something in this race. I knew I had the legs to because it's just a time trial, as Maggie said, it's about producing high numbers across the cobbles. I knew I had physically in me to get to the finish in the front, but my problem was everyone else. So there's so much emphasis in the meetings, the day befores, mm. in the morning about economy, save your energy, save your energy to the later stages, save it. So this, you go out with this save and eat, 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 save, save. But before the first cobbles, it's just mayhem. And you've got to make these big accelerations, these big sprints up the sides, in, out. And it's, and, and you're still thinking save. No, it's, two, it's 150k to go, just don't. And by doing that, by just not challenging yourself, you find yourself way too back and making efforts anyway. There's always a crash yeah. first cobbles. Yeah. You'll always find yourself coming off the first section in the third group, looking up ahead, thinking, oh, God, and chasing and chasing and chasing. And at some point, you are going to have to commit and realise, OK, the race started. And that, for me, was always Arenberg. I always found yeah. you come out of Arenberg in a good place, you stay in a good place, and you just st- that's it. That's the time to commit. No more saving anymore. And so... Um, About three Ks, four Ks before Arenberg is where, where it really battle. starts. And that, to me, that, that is the biggest lead-out and the biggest commitment that you'll find any rider take uh, and the biggest sacrifice they're willing to make throughout their whole cycling careers yeah. is, is to run into the, to the forest of Arenberg. You, you just really couldn't care less at that point what happens. It's just you being top two, three onto the cobbles on, in, in the forest or you in a pile on the floor and it's going to be one or the other. Now, you always found you made more sprints and more efforts 
at the start was the start of Arenberg's your finish line. Yeah. And you hit the cobbles in a good place and then you can ease off a bit. Yeah. Right, I've done it, I'm in the good place. And then you hear all the carnage behind. Now if you're in that carnage behind, you can come out three minutes down out of the forest and pretty much the race is over unless you're lucky and there's a problem up front or a big hitter up front punctures and you can come back through the cars with them. But it is it is like that and it's a constant then. Now for all the recons and finding out lefts and rights, and okay, I remember this bit. I always found after Arenberg and particularly after the second feed, that all goes out the window and you find yourself in a tunnel tarmac hitting cobbles off up tarmac hitting cobbles off and before you know it you're 40k to go and you are where you are so it's an amazing race there's no other race like it I mean it really is and my last Paris-Roubaix I was in that frame of mind of save it save it save I watched all the carnage happening behind and at some point I thought this is ridiculous Brad and I managed to get to the front before Templar and I just followed the motorbike and went for it and I found myself from the back of the race within 2k I was off the front with Steve Bart and another guy one minute up on the peloton 40k to go in the front three in Perry Bay. 5k before that was last last man of the main group on the road. I mean, it, until you commit and just go for mm. it, Roubaix can just change in a heartbeat for you. It is never finished until you cross that last cobblestone, and and sometimes even just behind that. So your win, Magnus, in 2004 mm. was Brad's. I think I'm right in saying this. Your second, Paris second, Roubaix, yes, yeah. yeah. And Johan Museo was in that final group with yeah. you, making your way uh, in, into that last 6k. The velodrome's almost in sight at this point, and Museo punctures, <coughs> and that's that's well, he rolls in fifth in the end. We think. Grouson, yeah. he punched on Grouson, did he? He pen on him. So. Yeah, Johan was the one, the one who sort of tore that race apart across the, the first part of the uh, Carrefour. And I remember Baldato dropped me off on Johan's wheel uh, just as we turned on to, to the Carrefour. And I was sitting there thinking, this is really hurting a lot. And I didn't think we were actually going to be anything special like that. It was just, you know, it was really un- uncomfortable and, and painful, but it wasn't that bad. And as we turned out, you know, gone past a calf in, in Carrefour, turned out on that little, like 50 metres of tarmac road and looked back and there was only five of us left and at that point it was just full commitment to the velodrome and I remember going across coming into Hem there there's those tarmac sections on the side of the road and cobbles in the middle and you kind of flick from left to right and we flicked across from, from left to right just to take they get the apex on, on the corner and I just missed a stone and Johan was on my wheel and he, he hit it it's one uh, stone ends your race in that yeah, situation yeah and, and it's funny how that kind of goes goes um, goes around because a couple of years earlier I, I was in the front group um, going in there for for podium position and I punctured 100 meters after that last section in Hem. So I thought um, that's a bit of bit of swings and roundabouts <laughs> going on there. <laughs> what goes around comes around. <laughs> Talking of what goes around comes around. Johan was one of your great heroes, wasn't yes, he? When he you was. were, when you were growing up. Yeah. And there's I think you've spoken about this before, where you you went to the Tour of Flanders in 1993 to mm. to see him, mm. uh, and you want to get a picture with him afterwards. And so you're there with your mum. 96, yeah, 96. 96. Apologies. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. And and she gets a picture of you walking across the car park with yeah. him because you've gone up to say hello but you don't quite no, he's, have he's, the... he's pissed off he's just snapped a spoke that was the story but I think it was with his legs on the Mur de Grammont yeah. while Bartoli is attacking and Michele won Museo comes back to the group finishes third stays in the bus to the 11th hour until his car's ready and has to walk across from the bus to his car you know just like yeah but that's what it's like, you know, that's why, but that's then, why I'm here today. Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's one of the reasons. But then having not quite had that sort of teenage fanboy mm. courage to go up and say hello to him, he, years later, has got a son who's a big yeah. fan of yours, yes. and he turns up at Paris-Roubaix. Just before Roubaix, Just yeah. before Roubaix, yeah. and he wants to say hello to you, and he's bought, not only has he bought a couple of his jerseys for yeah. you, and you've obviously, you know he's coming, so you've got a jersey for yes. him. What else did he turn up with? 
A uh, load of beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you crack one open with him? <laughs> we did, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. The beer Quite called right. West Valita and you can't buy it. You have to be on a list to buy it. Yeah. So, yeah. But um, by then, he's not no longer the man he was. You know, in those years when I was turning pro and racing behind him, he was just an animal. Massive, massive legs. I can remember one leg being bigger than the other. Yeah. He used to sit far back in the saddle and heels in the frame and massive gear. And when you turn pro and you ride behind someone like that, you can't just ever, you can't ever imagine being that good and looking like yeah. that. You think you just look. I don't know. It's it's, it's an incredible thing to explain. But now I meet him now, and he's not like he used to be. Talks, he's funny and that. And you let your guard down when you finish cycling. Yeah. You're no longer this guarded person that you perceive. You have to put a perception on. So, as a competitor and all this, it's it's strange. You know, kind of. Years later, you meet people, then you think, God, actually, you're really nice. God, Eric Zabel's the same now. He's the most chatty man in yeah, the Yeah, he is, definitely. And um, that's what sport does to people, yeah. Was he the guy you were, you were seriously in awe of? Was, yeah. there, was there anyone else that you've, you've got stories about? Like, from a yeah. grand tour point of view, but yeah. you, you can't... You watched, I was watching injury in those days. I can never imagine... That's that's a different world, you know? You, you can never imagine doing what he do. But there was always something that thought, well, no, I could do the classics, and for one day I could maybe finish... Paris Roubaix and come on to that velodrome but just on Roubaix I think I'll ask Maggie because it's probably one of the most unique sprints so you go through all those crazy cobbles yeah. you go through all this you get their punches and then you come onto this velodrome with a lap and a half to go of a sprint that is probably as I say the most unique you've got a banking you can use for speed yeah. Yeah. you can stay low <laughs> it's not track thing so you can come on the blue yeah well <laughs> I mean it's just this it's, it's, it is the strangest sprint and w- whether you're in the track or not but to come onto there and you can hear a bell on the other side of the track because someone else has just come on and you don't know who's on what lap and behind yeah. and it's it's a strange one I mean you've, it's, you've it's, won a sprint from that position so you can probably tell it what, it's, it, what it's like it is really quite weird and it's one of the things that like the first time I raced I, I came onto that that velocity um, we were sprinting four for fourth place. I was leading Fred Moncassin out there, the old French sprinter there. And it was really quite strange because muddy tyres on the banked velodrome and you kind of were freaking out a little bit. Is this going to be enough <laughs> grip for me to go up the track or not? And you're sprinting as if it was a, a track race. And I kind of I, I took a mental note of oh, that, that day in, in 98 of, of how I moved around on the track and the fact that I used it as a track race. And went back and kind of looked at all of the sprints that that was that been done on the velodrome in a bigger group, and how the people moved. And then obviously looked in the rule books, and it's this, it's a road race, so you're allowed to go on the inside. You're allowed to use yeah. effectively the, the the gravel on the inside mm-hmm. as long as you come across the finish line. You're you're fine and doing whatever. So subconsciously I'd worked into my head that that was a possibility and quite a big one at, at that uh, and as, I, as Roger Hammond boxed me in on the back straight I, it's sort of I, I, I never even tried backing backing out and around and, and trying to go around Tristan Hoffman and, and, and Roger and Cancellara I was just waiting for Cancellara to move up the track a fraction and managed to go down the inside of them and, and that was that, that that was the winning move at the end yeah. you know and so it's it's such a unique sprint you just yeah, you just don't get anything like it you know it's not like a track race in some respects um and who are you looking at this year i mean it's you know it, it's impossible to call but who do we foresee being in the mix at the end and are we hoping for a, a wet race or a dry race? Because if it's if it's wet, it's going to be you know slipping and sliding everywhere. If I think, it's dry, I think I'm going to do the rain dance actually, and I'm <laughs> hoping for a wet Paris-Roubaix. It hasn't been one for for yonks. Um, the last one was 2004. Was yeah, slightly wet, wasn't it? 2005. I remember there was we had we had a couple couple of sort of damp sections. But it, it was, was probably wet. Museo, um, wasn't it? Oh, 2002. Uh, that was the real one. 
Carnarvon. No, that was one. And one, yeah. Two was Museo Boonen. Remember when Boonen yeah. got third? Yeah. They were the last years. Those were the last years, yeah. Because yeah. so remember the first, uh, the first time uh, that we used the cobbles in, of Roubaix in, mm. in the tour when Nibali was up there in the wet. Yes. Um, Cancellara put a tweet out the, the night before saying, anyone out there know how to ride these things in the wet? And that, that, that kind of got me a little bit, the fact that he'd never, throughout his whole career, never, never. ridden Parabay yeah. in the wet. yeah. And it's it's the most awesome bike race in the world when it's wet. It's it's, it's awesome more spectacle. It's more carnage than than yeah. than it normally is in the dry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when it's dry, how do you feel afterwards? Because you've basically spent coughing, coughing half up a day dust. sucking up dust. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're coughing dust for about a week, aren't you? It's the Monday morning when you start get back on your bike if you do or whatever, and you start cleaning your shoes again, and you you know you kind of realise all the the mud that's got just dust really more than mud. Mm. Your glasses, your helmet, everything's just caked in in dust because you just don't realise after the finish. You know you can so walk in, in a, a daze around those showers and the stories people coming in the bus. Have you finished? Or someone will come in with a broken arm and everyone's talking <laughs> and kind of seeing how they got on in the day and you've got out the shower and a big group finish and three of your guys have finished half an hour down just because they want to finish Paris Bay. Just to say you've done you it. Just to say you've got yeah. to the velodrome. Yeah, I think there's more. You, you, there's it's the only race you'll do that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Everywhere else, you're just going to quite happily climb Pretty off. Pretty much. Yeah. Don't worry about it. And, and and the time gaps as well. By the time you sort of get the first group of riders gone through in the first bunch, is almost mountain stage Tour de France kind of time gaps to open up. You know, the last guy, like you said, coming down, you know, fifty odd minutes down on 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 the winner, but he's managed to get himself across all the fields and. Uh, dodge all the Belgian drunk spectators and all the rest of it when as the, as the race is kind of long gone through but is out there on his own wanting to finish and and that's, that, that to me is part of what certainly what Paris-Roubaix is is that this sort of heritage of the sport the history of, of the race the roads that we do go across on, and the history that they carry is what makes that race so special. And there's only one day a year that you could do 100 bike races and they're more or less the same. Mm. Even if we're taking the Tour of Flanders, Het uh, Newsblood, E3, Warigem, um Köln, Brussels, Köln, there's a good 10, 15 bike races in Belgium that more or less look the same. There's only one day on the year that looks like Paris-Roubaix does. Talking about that sort of camaraderie in the bus afterwards, you know, especially with a race like Roubaix, uh, is, is that one of the things you miss the most, having reti- both of you having re- retired from the professional peloton? Let, let me ask you, having retired from, from professional road cycling, mm-hmm. what is it you miss the most? And what, if anything, have you taken up in its place to fill that void? Well... I, I said I miss, I miss the adrenaline rush of of being in the hot air. You know the, the the type of racing that I did was the classics and and lead out for the sprints and all that sort of stuff. And the adrenaline rush that you get from from doing stuff like that and going in with that kind of a commitment and and camaraderie that that sort of uh, develops as well. The, the the trust between you and your teammates and and the the, the sort of will to deliver and and making sure that you're giving that 100. percent I think that's been difficult. I think to find to fill that that void with, you know. And I ended up doing doing a bit of Ironman and stuff like that. But that was just uh, for me. It was a thing I wanted to to. I've always wanted to do some 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 Ironmans. I always, you know, really respected those athletes for what they do because it's a it's a pretty 
grueling kind of sport. Well, and then, road, road cycling clearly wasn't difficult enough for you. Well, so you, you, you know, going... if, you, if you're going to have a go with something, make it difficult, right? <laughs> um, but no, it, it, it's, it's sort of filled the gap for me for, for a couple of years and uh, I really enjoyed doing it. But I think it would be always be difficult to fill that, that space with your mates on the, I said, on the team bus after a race when you, re- you really nailed like, everything. Brad? What about you? You know, we've spoken before about how you felt institutionalised almost, yeah. and it was in many ways maybe a relief to have been out of certainly that Team Sky bubble and not have those same commitments mm. uh, that, that you did. But did you get to a point where you found like um, having having given up, obviously with your own team, given up riding? Did you get to a point where you found like you wanted you wanted something else? Yeah, I just had enough of cycling. Really, I'd had enough of it. I'd had enough of the fame it brought me and all that sort of stuff. I craved normality. And I craved a bit of solitude, really. But I, I wanted to still train because it was the only thing I knew. So routine, structure, and just I was institutionalised to train and the endorphins it gave you when you finish a session. I started rowing on an indoor rowing machine and then it kind of advanced to getting on water, which was just as kind of a lot of escapism and that. And just a change of identity. I got sick of being Sir Bradley Wiggins and kind of hero-worshipped and all this. For 20 years, I'd just been called a hero and a legend, you know, and other things, obviously, but only behind the back. Um, but that's the problem. Only, no, that's, that's the problem, you see. You only hear it behind your back yeah. or by someone called never to buy a real person. Go, Do you know what? I actually really like you, but I think you can be a bit of a d- at times. Or something like people don't tell you that in this. Sure. In this so they only heap praise on you. And that creates a lot of problems for you long term, really. Until you, If you don't get out of that and, and have a good family around you and stuff like that, you just walk around for the rest of your life entitled, thinking people should know who you are thinking that that status gets you in restaurants or you get freebies, this, that, enough, And you've got to come out of that pretty quickly, leave it all behind and move on for the sake of... Otherwise, your kids grow up idiots as well, you know? It's mm. just things like that. I just It's not real, you know? And I just think... But after two years now, I've kind of realised I don't have to do that. You can let it go. You don't have to train every day. You don't have to be a you know, superstar, amazing athlete. You can do anything, you know, because that's all people ever tell you as well. You know, you're capable of anything. And you feel like you have to put a front up and hold that front up, you know? And now it's like, no, you can just be normal. Leave it. It's all right. Just be a good parent. Rowing, you, don't, you don't have to be that, that super lean, super fit athlete that, that you were. You can you can quite yeah. happily walk around and ride your bike still just because you enjoy doing it, going yeah. out with your son, daughters, whatever. So, um, yeah. And I think last year was one of the one of the coolest uh, yeah, it was, days yeah. for, for, for me. Cause I think we, more we, for people around us taking pictures, it was, but yeah. we were unawares <laughs> of what so, was happening. So uh, we went out to the mini Paraguay um, with with our kids so I had my youngest daughter riding right out of his son riding and uh, and, and we were stood stu- at the start line there and well Maggie he- was fixing my son's bike at the start and I was holding the screwdriver while he was <laughs> to, 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 to mechanic and so well, we were both mechanics and, and yeah. just dads and out and, and then both there. stood on the end of the car four waiting for all these kids to come through yeah. it was amazing amazing to see all these kids so, you know, so you know as we all we've been speaking about today we're still there now yeah. after Maggie's been 15 years on on the same stretch of road where he was talking about coming off and seeing there was five left and you're doing it you know you still so this sport keeps you in it and it's and we talk about how do you detach well there's your kids now you're doing it for them as well yeah it's amazing it's rowing a real uh, as you say a detachment for you a proper like back, no, I loved to, back it, yeah. to basics because it was and, brutal as well yeah and it and it was quantifiable because it's numbers you do this number you do you know i think i like that as well at what point did you come around to thinking of holding a second my numbers have got to a certain level here that if i continue to go yeah. on this trajectory i can start looking at well, I was never going to continue to go on the trajectory because they're getting faster. While you're getting faster in the short time you've had, yeah. they're getting just as fast. And you've still got to transfer it to a boat, which is a whole other ball game. It's like sitting on an indoor machine and producing the numbers you need to produce to do a team pursuit, but then doing it on the track with the turns and the changes and everything else. It's a, I was never going to get that. 
So 2020. That's 20 years that was, of work. That 2020 was never the Olympics. But that was Not never. Really, that you, was that was a, that was us all getting excited in the media. Well, I think you see, and this is. I never actually said that. I, I really. I never. I don't think I ever got him out in an interview and said I want to try and make the Olympic yeah. team. Someone asked me, and where do you think this is going to go? And I yeah. said, well, I'll be lying if I thought if I didn't think halfway through these two hour uh, hour and a half ergo machine things that there's a sixth Olympic gold in there somewhere. <laughs> That's what I said. But that's the silly things you find yeah, in those yeah. periods to get you through those things, you know? Yeah. But once it came out, I was like, well, give me something. To... But then that, that's what I mean. I'm holding on to this thing because they're still talking about me in the press. Sure. Going to the Olympics. So you sort of somehow convince yourself that you're doing this. But well, then one, it... one feeds the other. Yeah. You've got, you got to let it go. Got to let it go. So you're still rowing? Because then the point came. No, no, no. But the point came then. It was like, right, it's two years to go to the Olympics. I'm going to have to go and move back down south now, back away from the family. The reason I've just stopped cycling to go... Get back into that whole cycle. Like, well, hang on a minute. How's this happened again? You know, you've, reti- you've tired once and then and then it just catches up with you. Then you hit the drink and then it starts, you know. <laughs> you find an addiction. No. No, that, that's it, you know. So, yeah. Never fancy to crack at Iron Man. How's he swimming? No. no, I have to be careful now that whatever I go into, that I have, I don't reignite my old. Because there's no, there's no Olympics, so. No, I, don't, I just don't want to become <laughs> that person again. Yeah, that's just I get so obsessive with stuff. I've got an obsessive. Yeah, I, I got to ask you. Anyway. I got to ask you this question now, right? So whenever I get back on a bike, so I go go away for with yeah. with my daughters now for for a, for a training camp. And I sort of, you know, legs aren't quite working to start off with. And then about five, six days into the camp, you start getting your legs back in again. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, I'm actually going all right here. Before you know it, or certainly before I know it, I've worked out what I need to do to be at a certain level again <laughs> within a certain period of time. Do you find the same thing when uh, if you're going out? If, um, you start, if you start getting back into a sport that, that you've yeah. very quickly worked well, I started out what it running takes a bit, to. actually, and I started looking at you start trying to okay well if i ran at this pace for a marathon what time would that give me yeah, and then you start yeah. trying to work out well, what's it take to do a sub three hour marathon and yeah exactly and before you know it, you've started running away with you know i'm happy it's not just me <laughs> so brad to do the uh the marathon at the 2020 no, take Olympics. So. leave me alone come on I'm <laughs> yeah. a successful olympian leave me. let me be that till jason kenny gets you next year yeah. well that's about it for this episode of the bradley wiggins show by eurosport we'll be back next monday until then you can stay up to date with all things brad on brad's social media channels brad at sir wigger sir wigger maggie we can keep up to date with what's going on with you at at maggie underscore pr thank you very much and you can follow eurosport on twitter instagram and facebook and if you've enjoyed the show please do subscribe share and rate uh, on itunes but for now from me graham wilgos from brad and from magnus chaps it's goodbye thanks for joining us thank you thank you we'll see you next week the bradley wiggins show is a muddy knees media production for eurosport planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.